0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, tracing the story of a Ukrainian soldier whose death might thrust him into the history books.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard.
1: Before we begin, a quick heads up. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. Go back one year to a Ukrainian military outpost close to the Russian border.
2: It's the 23rd of February. There's a soldier, Dennis Katch. He's serving on a border checkpoint in the Hansk region. It's coming up to midnight. It's halfway through his shift.
1: Daniel Boffey is The Guardian's chief reporter.
2: Dennis's shift had been entirely uneventful. He'd um, to his wife at 11 o'clock and then he settled down for some rest while his colleagues patrolled outside. He rested and then at 3am, word came through on the radio and he was woken up that uh, unknown, unidentified, armed men had been spotted on Ukrainian territory. He didn't panic. These things in this part of the world have happened since 2014. Then it seems that about 3.40 a.m., a a group of men, probably five or six, of Russians in snow camouflage were spotted creeping towards their position, and a decision had to be made. Dennis ordered his five men to quietly, quickly, retreat from the position in order to go back and to go to a position where they may fight if necessary, but to get out of immediate danger. All of them do so. Dennis is the last one in his hut. He seems to have called out to his colleagues, where's the machine gun, and made a grab for the machine gun. And it's at this point that the Russians unleashed hell. A cascade of buff bullets was seen by those who were running away from the hut, ricocheting off the hut, shredding it, essentially. Bullets fizzing past their ears. They ran for their lives. Dennis was still in the hut have no idea at that stage what had happened to him it was shortly after 3 40 a.m an hour and 20 minutes before Vladimir Putin announced his special military operation in Ukraine but actually this was the moment when the war began
1: Dennis cash was killed that morning he was 36 one of an estimated tens of thousands of Ukrainian casualties in the year since Russia invaded and though that number is growing every day, history might record Dennis's death in a hut alone on that border as a terrible milestone.
2: All my research and reporting suggested that Dennis Katch was the first fatality in the Ukrainian military forces of the war. I decided that we should go back and find those who served with him, those who loved him, those who were left behind, to tell us a bit about him, about that night, but also about what happened in the following weeks and months in their lives.
1: Daniel Boffey has spent the past few weeks trying to reconstruct the last moments of this one soldier's life. What he's discovered is a story of bravery and of grief, but also a reminder that the first casualty of the Russian invasion might have been Dennis, but the first casualty of any war is the truth. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the death of Dennis Cash and what he left behind. Daniel Boffey, you're The Guardian's chief reporter and you've been on the ground in Ukraine throughout this year, chronicling the war. What set you on the path of Dennis's story?
2: My previous job was in Brussels and I'd sort of covered the commemorations of the First World War and I'd recalled that I'd gone to Mons Cemetery where there'd been the first death of a British soldier and the last British soldier died were buried right opposite each other. And we were writing about those two lives what happened to them and the people they knew the people they loved and i remember it being quite a moving piece then and so i considered that you know finding out who was the first ukrainian soldier to die in this war would be a good way to go into the sort of the pain and the misery and the horror of what's unraveled over the last year
1: how do you figure out something that precise in a situation that is like enveloped in this fog of
2: war yeah it's incredibly difficult And also, you can't be definitive. Denis Katch was certainly one of the first to die in this war. He was all likelihood the first, but you can't can't be sure in the fog of war. But the Ukrainian state border guard have confirmed to me that this was where the Russians assaulted first and that, yes, the deaths in Zornovakir, which is this little village where Denis was stationed, were the first deaths that the Ukrainian military suffered on the 24th of February. And what I was able to do was talk to soldiers who were fighting that region and ask who died first. And everybody seems to think that Dennis was the first to die on that night.
1: And as you sought to delve into the story around Dennis's death, tell me about some of the people that you met.
2: Yeah, you know, it was a struggle to speak to people who knew him because they're still serving a lot of them. Some of them aren't uh, actually in Ukraine anymore. Some of them move over to Russia. Well. Some are still in the village that's occupied by Russia. But we, we spoke to several soldiers. So soldiers who were immediately with Dennis, soldiers who were slightly behind, sort of 300 metres behind in the village, and then soldiers actually way back behind in another village. Artem Uzumets, who was with Dennis in the hut. probably <laughs> He recalls the the news coming in that the Russian soldiers are stalking towards us and what struck me was that you know Dennis was making decisions he was in control he made the decision that he would be the last out of this hut. The soldiers tell me that Dennis ordered their retreat. And his last words, apparently, it seems, were aware of the machine gun. There was only one machine gun in, in, in the hut, and he's looking for it, making a grab for it. And it's that instinctive reaction to send his men back, to protect his men, to be the last one in, to be a leader, to potentially try and cover their retreat. That later would win him a posthumous bravery medal. Further behind in the village, spoke to a senior lieutenant, 37-year-old. He didn't want to give me his, his surname, um, I think because he has family still in occupied um, territories, Alexander. And he said that he and a junior colleague were walking around the village and they heard the dogs barking. They didn't hear the bullets because the bullet it was from silenced weapons. But Alexander said, well, why are the dogs barking at 3.40 a.m.? That's strange. And then suddenly they heard a on a loud hailer, Surrender, put your arms down and your life will not be threatened. Can you imagine? It's pitch black. It's heavy snow. The dogs bark and then you have this beaming over out of nowhere in Russian. They call the commander, you know, what should we do? And then the message is, boys, you're under fire. Get the hell out of there.
1: Just terrifying. And Dennis's comrades pointed you to his wife Oksana, who you went to speak to next. How did you track her down?
2: But I expected her to still be in, in the village, in the home that she shared with Dennis, which has been occupied throughout the war. But then I discovered that she had uh, evacuated in August with her her children and her mother um, to go to Western Ukraine. So we uh, got in the car and we drove over to Vladimir and she lived in a, in a house on the outskirts of this city.
1: And so when you met her, what kind of man did she tell you that her husband was?
2: The first thing she talked about was what he was like as a father, how the children always looked forward to him coming home. They had two children, Dominika, the daughter, who's two years old now, and Roman, who's eight, who biologically wasn't Denis's son, But he's the father he's known all his life, and their relationship was extremely, extremely tight. He was a a guy who just loved to be outdoors, he loved hunting, fishing, fiddling with engines.
3: They had a 1991
2: model white larder, which was his pride and joy, and he sort of fixed it, made it as good as new, but ultimately all about the family, all about those two children. And they'd known each other throughout their lives. They'd sort of grown up in the same village, like a few streets apart. She was seven years younger than Dennis, so as uh, she said, he knew her before she knew him. And it took a while for their romance to sort of bubble to
3: the top.
2: They only really got together about seven years ago, but they seemed so deeply, deeply in love. They talked all the time when he was on duty, just to sort of make contact.
1: What does she remember of that morning a year ago, the 24th of February?
2: So they had a long conversation at 11pm on the 23rd of February. He was in his hut at the military checkpoint. And they they spoke about buying their daughter a birthday present. They were going to get a little push car. They ended their conversation as they always did. (laughs) I'm sure I love you, I miss you. Um, Dennis was due to be off shift. 10.30 the next morning, he'd been on duty for the last two days. And that was that, and nothing untoward it seemed to be the case. It all seemed calm. Then at 4am, Oksana was woken by hysterical cries from her daughter in the co- in next to her. She was just inconsolable. Oksana was saying that her daughter had never cried like this before. She struggled to sort of calm her down. The windows rattled and she heard the thump, the crump of artillery. And she realized that the war had started. You know, Putin had been gathering hundreds of thousands of troops on the border. Dennis's life had been very difficult the last few weeks because of it. But they hadn't expected it that night, but there it was. And so she has her daughter in her arms, wailing, crying. She was in a state of kind of panic. She then calls Dennis, but it keeps on ringing out. She calls five times, at least nothing happening. She calls um, his commander. Oh, he says, no, look, um, we've sent a car over... We've told them to retreat. I think we, everyone's fine, that we're going to get them out of there. Yes, everyone's under attack, but we'll, we'll, everyone's going to be okay. Don't worry, don't worry. She doesn't believe him. She, she knows her husband would have called her. Um, she calls her mum. says mum, the war's come and I think he's gone. Why is he not answering his phone? Why is he not being in contact? And she said, no, 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 he's a hunter, he's a survivor, he knows the territory around here. Okay, he's under attack, but of all the people, he'll be fine. And Oksana is not convinced at all. And at 6am, she wakes her son up, Roman, and she's determined to go and find him.
1: I mean, I cannot imagine the state she must have been in. So she sets out with her children to try to figure out what's happened to her husband. Where does that lead her?
2: So she drives to her mum's to leave the children. It's about nine kilometres from the village to the checkpoint where her husband had been serving. She calls her sister, who lives a little bit close to the board, and says, will you come with me? And she's like, no, look, there are Russian machineries, tanks, all sorts of technical equipment coming down the road. We've got to just wait, just wait. I'm not waiting anymore. I've waited too long. I don't. I'm not scared of anything. I'm going. You either come with me or I go alone. Her sister agrees to go with her, so she picks up her sister and two male friends of her sister's. They were there for support. She gets into the car, into the little white larder, and they make the short drive to where Dennis had been stationed, and looming towards them is every type of Russian vehicle, military vehicle you can imagine. Oh my God. Tank, armoured vehicles, technical equipment Oksana couldn't even describe. Um, It was the full force of the Russian army um, heading towards them. And luckily, the Russian army is unperturbed by um, Oksana and her little white larder heading the other way. Oksana drives on she comes to where the checkpoint is, and she pulls up onto the right. Even before she gets out of the car, she can see there's a body by the hut. And she knows, she just knows, and she, I think she recognises the the shape of him. She gets out of the car, her sister and the, the two men trying to hold her back, but she runs. She, she's hysterical, she gets to the body. There are Russians sort of milling around, there's armoured vehicles and stuff, but she doesn't care. She just runs, she goes, she falls, collapses onto the body. It's stiff and he's completely shot through.
3: There isn't
2: a piece of his body that doesn't appear to have been shot, Uh, even his fingers broken from bullets. She wants to scream at the Russians. She wants to tell them you've murdered my husband, you've got to help me get him home. But her sister sort of ushers her away.
1: It's just incredible that this whole scene is playing out in front of the Russian forces.
2: There seems almost some embarrassment on the side of the Russian soldiers. They're sort of peeking out from behind the armoured cars, but they don't approach. They look maybe sheepish. What can they do? There's no way back. The war has started and this is the horrible, inevitable consequence of it. This is what they're here to do.
1: At this point, it's clear to the entire world that Ukraine is under full-scale invasion. What does Oksana do next? What does she do with Denis's body?
2: So the two men who are with her go get a, a trailer from the local village and they fit it to the larder, and they have to drive the body back. Oksana doesn't remember a moment of that drive. She's in a state of complete shock. Uh, she has her husband's blood on her. <laughs> And they drive back to the house. By the time they get back, the word had got round that Dennis had been killed. Uh, the head of the village was there. There's lots of hugging and tears and, you know, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? The crowd disperses a bit. They, they bring his body into the front room. And she's advised that she, she needs to get him ready for burial. A few of... Her sister's friends come around, including a woman who, who knows how to prepare a body for, for burial. And we're still talking four or five hours since he died. His wife is taking his uniform off, and he's still bleeding heavily from these wounds.
3: him. every We
2: they actually have to stuff cotton wool into his wounds to try and stop the bleeding, put scotch tape over the cotton wool just so that when they dress him in his wedding suit, they wouldn't ruin the suits. Oksana says that you know she's worried that it had to be a closed coffin, but actually his face, while smeared with blood, didn't have any bullet wounds to it, and so when she cleaned, washed his face, there he was, the Danish she knew and loved.
1: The next day, Dennis's family comes out for his funeral and it's a show of unity at a time when the entire country is pulling together in response to the invasion. What's happened to the family in the years since Dennis was killed?
2: This is kind of one of the the hardest things for Oksana. Her parents-in-law, they were horrified, obviously, hysterical when they first saw the body but then they refused to believe that the Russians could have done it. Really? First of all, Dennis's sister has moved to Russia. They, the parents-in-law, followed. His family were very much of the old world. They had a great affiliation with Russia. They listened to Russian news, they read Russian newspapers, they watched Russian television. And such is the power of it that even their son's death surely at Russian hands could not convince them that Russia was in the wrong here. And it's been incredibly painful. So when even when Oksana she left for the West, her sister in law, Dennis's sister, criticised us, I can't believe you're leaving to go West, leaving Dennis on his own in, in his grave. And the family has completely and utterly split.
1: It's just so hard to believe that his family, Denis's death, the death of likely the first Ukrainian soldier in the war, is contested. It's divided them.
2: She leaves behind a village that has split as well. So, immediately after occupation, a lot of the younger generation left. And many of those left behind are the older generation who, again, feel great affiliation to Russia. And Oksana talks about how, in the months before she left the village, initial kind of shock why are the Russians here? Why have they invaded? What's going on? Turn to oh, they've liberated us. They're denazifying Ukraine, uh, accepting and celebrating Russian occupation. She couldn't understand the switch in mentality. And her son would have had to go to Russian school. She was told that unless her son was put into the the Russian system, that he would be taken away to Russia. She just felt unsafe and she had to get out.
1: I mean, it says something about the complexity of this war, that it's fought with guns and bullets and artillery, but also with with propaganda, with education, with language.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just shows the power of decades of Soviet indoctrination, followed by all that Putin has done to to tell a story over the last 20 years about Russia and, and historical lands and all the rest of it. And um, even though those circumstances, the parents of a dead Ukrainian soldier questioned, really. Well, maybe the Ukrainians did it. And what worries Oksana is that there were people around Denis, and including his commander, who ultimately stayed in, in Russia.
1: They defected.
2: Yeah, I wonder whether it's too strong to say defection, because they, they may just be scared. Terrified. You know, these, you see the Ukrainian border state guard, they didn't join up to fight in a war. They joined up because that was the job that was available to them and it, it looked fun and exciting. Um, it, it The idea wasn't to, to die.
1: Then. This is such a remarkable story, but then in other ways, it's completely unremarkable. Dennis may have been the first soldier killed in the war, but in the years since, he's one of tens of thousands. At this point, what do we estimate is the number of Ukrainian soldiers killed? And what about
2: civilians? The Ukrainian government is refusing to give the numbers. There was a moment where Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, did a speech and she said that 20,000 civilians have been killed, Ukrainian civilians, and 100,000 Ukrainian officers have been killed. Then she kind of backtracked and that part of her speech was cut from a video. US military suggests that around 100,000 Ukrainian military have been killed or injured, with the Russians around the same. Ukrainians say it's more like 150,000 Russian dead. But we don't know. These things are impossible impossible to, to know at this stage.
1: But the story of Oksana, I guess, has been repeated, maybe not in those particular extraordinary details, but in terms of of the grief and the loss that she's struggling with tens of thousands of times and potentially more.
2: Yeah. When we talk about soldiers dying, there is a danger of saying, well, they're soldiers, that's what they do. But so often you look into their stories, they didn't get into it for this. They got into it because that was their only job going or that's what their friends were doing. It's a historic footnote the first soldier to die but also in a way it's it's not important so much that he's the first i do think it's just a way to understand the horror of what what unfolded i think it's a really good way to sort of delve into the life of a an everyman soldier who didn't want to be part of this but unfortunately was was sucked up into it in the case of dennis for example you know he didn't join the ukrainian state border guard to fight russians he joined it because he liked the outdoors life, because he joined it when he was 20 years old and there was no other job open to him. And that experience of being dragged into something he didn't want to be part of, then bravely fighting and then making the ultimate sacrifice, will have been replicated thousands of times over the last year.
1: Coming up, why it appears likely that this time next February, we'll be marking a second year of war in Ukraine. And we're a year into this war, and you've spent so many months inside Ukraine documenting suffering and hardship, but also a lot of resilience. What has it been like for you to be there hearing these kinds of stories?
2: Meeting people who whose stories just kind of leave you in tears. And indeed, sort of talking to Oksana when she was describing how she was dressing the body of her dead husband who was still bleeding and You want to sort of cry and um, welling up and it's horrible. And then life goes on for you. You get in your car, you drive away and what's the next story? Life goes on for Oksana. She's got to take her son to school after we'd spoken, you know, had homework to do, uh, Romans learning English. And it's really disconcerting that life goes on. These, These horrific, horrible, awful, can't believe this is happening and why is this happening, for what? And then normal stuff, your English homework, school tomorrow. Yeah, the contrast between sort of normality and then this just extraordinary rape and pillaging of this country. Kiev now, when you go to Kiev, it feels extremely normal, the restaurants and bars and the rest of it. And yet then suddenly it really doesn't. When the air raid sirens go off, or you have an Iranian drone attack, and they're being shot down in the sky, I can't find that ever normal. There's one moment where getting off the the train in Kiev... There was an Iranian drone attack, and it was hitting just around the station. And we got into our car and drove away. And then this drone was right over my head, and it was sort of buzzing around. It was quite sort of graceful and beautiful. And then it its wing dipped, and it went straight down. And oh, what a relief! You know, I felt immense relief. And then we drove away. And then I saw on Telegram channels later, and then I went down to the to the building itself and saw the a couple. The woman had been pregnant. Burnt out bodies.
1: And in the face of that everyday horror that Ukrainians are experiencing, we know that Moscow isn't backing down. Opposition to the war within Russia doesn't seem to be growing. They've got no shortage of men they can mobilize and throw into the conflict. And the thing I wonder is does that Ukrainian resilience and determination to go on have a limit? Is there a point at which with daily life so disrupted, so many lives taken, that the Ukrainian people and their government do push for a compromise, some kind of agreement that trades land for
2: for peace? I think, ultimately, they won't be able to carry on unless the West continues to support them. But as long as the West supports them with ammunition, artillery, tanks, maybe even one day fighter planes, although that seems unlikely, as long as they continue to support them to a certain level, I think the Ukrainians carry on. It's a phrase that keeps on being repeated to me. We need to finish this now. But there is that sense that, that Russia has been trying to keep Ukraine a colony for centuries and trying to turn Ukrainians into second-class citizens and to impose the Russian way of life onto them, and that this has to stop, and this is the moment where it's going to stop. And I don't really see West support um, dwindling away. So I think this carries on. And
1: when you speak to Oksana and other Ukrainians that have sacrificed so much, that have family members who are serving, risking death in the Ukrainian army, what do they tell you about what they want for the next year?
2: <laughs> hey, when they talk to me, they say they want uh, fighter jets. <laughs> they want stronger, harder weapons. And that's all they talk about. They talk about the next victory and the West needs to do this, the West needs to do this. They don't really talk about peace. They talk about victory. You know, it's not that yearning for the life they had. They just want to win now. They kind of had a peace 2014 to 2022, but it was one that was fragile and Russia... It took Crimea. They had their People's Republics, um, Donetsk and the House of People's Republics. They want that, all that behind them. They want victory. They want Russia not to be in a position to ever be able to do this again.
1: So that sounds like, given that determination on both sides to press ahead, that this time next year, we'll be marking the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine.
2: I have a horrible feeling we will, because early in the year, I got the distinct impression, so March, April that the Ukrainian people and even the Ukrainian government wanted peace. It wasn't talking about victory, it was peace. So we had Ukrainian peace talks. We had the Russians and Ukrainians in Turkey and elsewhere talking about peace. And the Ukrainian government was actually making public their terms. And the terms were the borders as they were um, on the 23rd of February. So they were kind of ceding Crimea to a certain extent, and even to a certain extent, the Donbass. So they were talking of a muddy compromise there, a peace... Now they're not, because they don't trust Putin. They think it has to end, that Russia has to be completely destroyed. Now, Russia isn't going to be completely destroyed, is it? It's not going to happen. So I do think that we may be here. We might have another 100,000 deaths on each side uh, in a year's time.
1: Dan Boffy, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Daniel Boffy, The Guardian's chief reporter, whose coverage from Ukraine, including his story on Dennis Cash, you can find at theguardian.com. Before we go, the first anniversary of the war is also being covered by our sister podcasts. On Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, John Harris spoke to the Ukrainian Member of Parliament, Kira Rudik, and The Guardian's Dan Saber about how the war has changed the world. And in Politics Weekly America, out today, Joni Grieve speaks to Susan Glasser of The New Yorker about why President Biden chose this week to visit Kiev and what the future holds for NATO. Our reporters were on the ground in Ukraine long before the invasion on the 24th of February, on both sides of the border. Since that day, a year ago, we've had at least two reporters in Ukraine at any one time, and often four or five, covering all aspects of the war. We hope to be able to maintain this presence there until the conclusion of the conflict and beyond, but we can only do so with support from our readers, listeners and viewers. Your funding keeps us open, independent, and able to produce round-the-clock, fact-checked reporting for millions of people around the world. If you're able to do so, please consider supporting our journalism today. You can do it for as little as a dollar or a pound. It only takes a minute, and it can all be done via support.theguardian.com. That's support.theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Klitsia Sala and Sami Gitsoyler. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson, and we'll be back on Monday. This
0: is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.